Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad Podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Hey, welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. I am the CEO of Fathers Incorporated, and each and every Sunday at 8 a.m., I join you with another special guest. This week is like no other week where I've had just phenomenal and awesome people come in. But this week, this week, and I say it another time, this week, I have the board chair of the one and only Fathers Incorporated, Bishop Darren Ferguson. And I'm so glad to have him with me this morning because if you guys don't know him, you will know him um, for a number of different reasons. Um, Since I've known him, he has completely filled my spirit and he has served um, on the Fathers Incorporated board um, with admiration, um, with inspiration, um, with all of those oration words that we can, you know, um, not with hate oration, even though we do get a little bit of that. Um, so, but he has served us for some time now and has been a friend of mine. I was calculating um, Bishop Ferg the other day, and I think we're winding up coming up on like almost 20 years. Yeah. Almost yep. 20 years. And I'm like, man, that's a long time to know somebody. Yeah. Where's the term? <laughs> and so thank you and welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. How you doing today? I'm wonderful, man. Just glad to be here in beautiful Atlanta. And of course, always glad to spend time with you. And so what, what we're going to talk about, and I'm going straight off the dome. And if, for those of you who don't know me, probably two or three of them, if not four of them so far, has been off the dome and I have people who call me up and say, you got any questions you're going to send me? And I'm like, nah, I was like, I'm not sending you any questions. First of all, if you can't answer a question that I have for you, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. (laughs) And so I never ask a question um, that you need preparation for. So I'm not going to ask him anything and I'm not going to ask him about his past and I ain't going to ask him about high school. I ain't going to go there (laughs) unless he want to go there. Um, But Darren has an awesome background and I want him to talk a little bit about his background so that you can at least get a foundation of who he is. And then we're just going to go from there. Wow. So, um, and presently, you know, I serve as board president of Fathers Incorporated, which I, one of my favorite things to do, uh, one of the, the most uh, coveted roles that I've had in my heart. Um, and also I serve as pastor of Bethel Baptist Church in Orange, New Jersey, also police chaplain in Orange, uh, and I'm the reentry coordinator for the city of Orange. So I work with men coming out of prison. And that's kind of my background. I, um, I served uh, eight years and eight months in prison from 1990 to 1998 uh, on an indeterminate sentence of six and two thirds to 20 years. I was uh, charged with uh, murder in the second degree and arson in the second degree, ended up taking a plea bargain uh, charge down to attempted murder in the second degree. Um, But but, uh, prison, I tell people all the time, I didn't get arrested, I got rescued. Mm. I I went to prison with uh, GED. I came out with two college degrees. 
I went to GED, uh, I mean, excuse me, I went to a prison not knowing who I was in terms of manhood, fatherhood, and, and gained a lot of those perspectives in prison, both from the men that were there with me in prison and also from some of the organizations and some of the, the, the education and the programs that I was in while I was in prison. And, um, and it's been a wonderful ride. 24 years later, um, coming up October 5th will be exactly 24 years since I was released from prison. Um, it's been a wonderful ride. All of the organizations that I've gotten to serve, all of the work that I've gotten to do, all of the places, um, the footprint that I've been afforded across the country, um, and especially in, in the, in the you know, New York, New Jersey area. I pastored in New York. Um, I, I was a youth minister at Abyssinian Baptist Church for five years, uh, which is one of the highlights of my ministerial career. Um, served as a director of Graham Up, which was their uh, Raise the Age program recently. I mean, just I, I've had so many opportunities, um, chaired meetings at the White House, done a lot of things. And that's not to break my arm, pat myself on my back, but hopefully uh, the people who watch your podcast, uh, especially anybody who has a criminal justice history, has had a run-in or uh, a mishap or spent time in prison will know that, you know, anything is possible. And, and for me, it was never it was never about, you know, self-aggrandizement or trying to blow myself up. But it was it was really my network of people starting with the foundation of my network is Alfonso Wyatt and Dr. Alfonso Wyatt and Calvin Obutz III. And between those two men, you know, I was afforded this. And, and then the third leg, I guess, would be uh, uh, Michael Bastin, Dr. Michael Bastin, who's now president of Cayuga Community College. So between those three men, I've been afforded a footprint in three very different areas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, civil rights. I, I was with uh, Sharpton as his youth director for a couple of years. But all of this is just really to let people know what's possible. You know, and you can't limit yourself because of a mistake or a mishap or something, you know, a, a, a paragraph on your your jacket. Um, but but you can do anything that you put your mind to. And, and more importantly, that God will raise you to heights that you think that your depths would keep you away from. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's such a, a great message because oftentimes we think our mistakes define us right. um, and they strengthen us. Right. If you learn from them, if you don't learn from them, obviously they weaken you. Right. But when you learn from your mistakes, it strengthens you. You know, one of the stories, I don't know if I've ever told you my Sing Sing story, because every time I hear you say um, that you were there, I always forget that. I don't know if I've ever told him my Sing Sing story. And so very quickly, my stepfather um, in New York, my brother and sister's um, natural father, my stepfather, um, who was in and out of our lives, you know, he moves from Mississippi, um, came to New York, um, trying to get away from what was going on in Mississippi mm -hmm. in the early 60s. And we can scroll back mm -hmm. and know what that was about. Right. Um, came to New York to find his way and got in what we used to describe as the movement, right? Mm -hmm. And so came up here and then he got in trouble um, and tried to, I believe he tried to rob a um, grocery store, a supermarket, supermarket on New Locks Avenue in, mm -hmm. in, in Brownsville. Um, him and I think three of his friends um, got caught, uh, was sent to Rackus Island. I remember the day that my mother and I and my siblings um, went to precinct, I believe it was 78 on Rockaway um, in New Lots Avenue mm. um, in Brooklyn. 
to see him. And they brought us through the back door where they brought the prisoners up through the back door. And we came up through the back door to see him. And the next time I remember seeing him, and this is the only time that I can recall not knowing that I did not go other times. It's just the one that I recall. I remember going to Sing Sing and being in the yard, right? And that's how you visited back then. You went to the yard and there was picnic tables all over the place. And inmates was everywhere, families and kids was running around and the guards were on the tower. I just vividly remember that image. And I remember sitting there and I probably was nine, eight, Mm. nine years old. And I just remember saying to myself, I would never be here that I would never find myself on this side of the wall ever in my life. I made that declaration to myself that day and it never happened to me. Fast forward some 30 years, I become the director of the New York State Fatherhood Initiative. And I get a phone call from a young lady who's running fatherhood program at Sing Sing. And she goes, Mr. Braswell, she goes, I've heard a lot about you. I would love for you to come down and speak to our graduating class. And I'm like, where's the class at again? And she was like, <laughs> sing, sing. And it didn't click for me at that point other than it was a prison. And I was like, nah, I'm not, nah, I'm not, I'm good. Because at that point I had not spoken to anybody behind bars mm-hmm. at that point of my career. And so I prayed about it, prayed about it. And then reluctantly, I was like, okay, you know, I'll go. And I remember getting in my car and driving down to Ossine and coming around that curve because it's right there by the water and that big, tall wall that Mm -hmm. you see when you come around that curve and you see the barbed wires and you see the, the towers and all that stuff. And I just had a visceral reaction like, Nah, turn around and go back because you're not ready for this. You're not ready to go in. And I went in. I went anyway. I walked, and you know, if you remember those stairs, you had to yeah. walk up. The walk yeah. up. It was like walking to a castle. Yep. You had to walk up all like a pyramid or something mm-hmm. up to the stairs. And I get in, and these families are in there. And I started walking through, and all of a sudden, all I heard was behind me. Like every time I went to one room, I heard clank clank. Yep. In another room and clang clang. That's right. You have to wait in this room. Then clang clang. Then you go into another one. It was clang. It was like four or five different yeah. doors I went through. And I had this moment where I thought to myself, mm. even if I wanted to get out of here, I can't right now. Right. And I wasn't arrested. I was a free person, but my mind was like, even if I wanted to get out of here, I can't get right. out of here. Right. And so God just settled me a little bit. I got settled down. We got upstairs. I think I got settled when I saw the fathers, but then I got unsettled because all of them had on their greens or oranges, mm-hmm. whatever they had greens. on their greens. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, man, look at all my brothers and all my brothers that are like, you know, locked down and they got their, they're sitting on one side, their family is sitting on the other side. And God just reminded me at that moment, remember when you said you were never coming back here again? Right. Cause I forgot that right. I forgot that I was in, I missed the connection between I'm now in the place right. that I said I would never come right. back to. And here I am standing at this podium and it's about 25 dads and I'm talking to them about the importance of being a father. And when God spoke that to me, I flipped my whole script. 
Yeah. And I started telling them this story. Yeah. And I got emotional. They got emotional. And at the end of the day, my, my, my point to them was no matter whether you're inside or outside, don't let anybody imprison your mind. Mm. Like, don't allow anybody to make you feel like the walls that you are confined by defines who you are. That what you do in here with your mind will define you on the outside. Right. And if you let time do you and you don't do time, then you've lost the battle. And it was like, it was, it just, God was just like, now, must, now you see why I, wow. I, why I brought you through this. I'm laughing because if that was anywhere in the 90s, I was probably at that graduation. No, nah, this was 2000s. It was 2000s? Yes. Okay, so it was after I was gone because <laughs> it was anywhere between 90 and 98, mm-hmm. uh, between 91 and 98, mm-hmm. I was probably there. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, um, it, the, the woman's name was, I don't know if, no, Julie wasn't running the program anymore by the time you did. It was probably, might have been Liz Gaines or one of those. Liz Gaines, that's who it was. From Osborne. Osborne, yes. Yep. That's who it was. Yep, just retired from Osborne, too. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing, man, because, you know, in in all of these years, I've seen all of this stuff come full circle. Just following people, people following me, following in my father's footsteps, Mm -hmm. and all this stuff comes full circle because us being connected, uh, me being connected to Alfonso, being at Sing Sing, um, working for Graham Wyndham, where I found out my father was in foster care in wow. the 1940s. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, becoming a police chaplain. My father was a retired New York City police a cop, mm-hmm. preaching in Abyssinian Baptist Church a couple of weeks ago on my father's birthday, who got baptized by Adam Clayton Powell in 1949. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you see life is cyclical, and life will bring you to where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you say things that I'll never, Fire. and you end up doing it not because. And you, what you meant as a child is, I'll never get incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Coming back to that place in your mind as an eight or nine year old meant I don't ever want to be locked up here. Fire. But Fire. but coming back there was part of your destiny, and that that memory, that experience, was the springboard for what you don't know what you planted in those men that day. Why? I really don't. And you know, and I remember leaving there and I remember there as I was walking away for the other thing that happened while I was there is um there was a miscount. <laughs> yeah, they the good old lockdown. miscount. Gotta stay there until everybody done. had to and it was like, okay, move and they moved everybody to the side and then they made us sit over here. They're like, Mr. Braswell, you gotta sit back here. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? It was like we had a miscount somewhere. And now they're counting it, recounting everyone to find out who's missing. But it was just a miscount. Yeah. No one had gone. But that triggered me too. It was kind of yeah. like, you know, this is, you know, even someone with a free mind and free in society can still be caught up in here right. and never get out of that <laughs> position. So I learned a lot of things, but it stimulated me into this area of work now where, you know, we're beginning to seriously and more deeply look at this whole notion of reentry and returning citizens and responsible fatherhood and what that looks like for our children, understanding that 91% of all prisoners across the country are fathers, right? right? That the largest predominantly cohort of men who are locked up of all colors um, happen to be fathers, right. which means that there's 2.3, I can't remember the 
2.3 million children have an incarcerated parent and in minority households, the ratio is even yeah. larger, right? And so, but I've been coming across these conversations, which is why I'm so glad that you're here today because we just did a um, conference with the National Responsible Father Clearinghouse and we had two, uh, two, um, two um, workshops. Um, and the one that you were on about fathers. Mm -hmm. And I remember listening to, I don't know why his name has escaped me, and I've probably said his name a hundred times now, and now can't remember his name. But anyway, I'm going to tell you a little bit of like what he described to me and how that shook me that day when I heard it, and I heard you guys tell a story. And he was talking about being conditioned to do a particular thing for over 20 some odd years or however many years he was incarcerated and him coming home and not being able to break that routine, particularly the routine of not being around someone because he spent most of his time in his cell by himself. Right. And he couldn't, or his family couldn't understand why he didn't want to be around them. And there were times where he just felt like after an hour or so, because that was what he was conditioned, even when he was around people, he was only around them for a couple of hours and then he was back in the cell. Right. And he was talking about how he was home. And after a couple of hours, he would have a level of anxiety and he just needed to get out and get by himself. Yeah. And he was, and he says that my family didn't understand that. And I'm like, man, in this work, in this particular work, like 18 years, I never understood that. I've never heard anyone articulate right. that depth of impact. Talk a little bit about that. There's, you know, I remember coming home, and so I got, I got locked up. My daughter was three months old. And when I came out, I came out literally two weeks before her ninth birthday. And I remember coming home and being asleep. And, you know, First, the uncomfortableness of sleeping in the bed with someone because, you know, my wife was there. And my daughter was so happy that I was home. She comes in the room and she's standing over me. And it's like five o'clock in the morning. And in my mind, all I knew was somebody's over me. And I grabbed her. It's a good thing I didn't grab her in a chokehold, but I grabbed, like, grabbed her by her pajamas. I'm like, and she's like, Daddy, Daddy. And I'm like, oh, my, because in my mind, it's like nobody's supposed to be standing in my bed. My cell's supposed to be locked. Nobody's supposed to be standing over my bed. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and then also realizing that I was spending an inordinate amount of time in the bathroom. <laughs> that was it. That's what it was it for me. I would go and lock myself in the bathroom and stay in the bathroom, and I'd read in the bathroom. I'd study in the bathroom. And, and my, my wife was eventually like, why are you in the toilet so long? And I didn't realize that that was my way to isolate myself, wow. to get away from everybody so I could so I could readjust and regroup mm -hmm. to be able to be around people. And, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, it was difficult. I mean, for me, it wasn't as hard as it was for some other people. I never spent time in solitary, thank God. Um, and I had jobs in prison where I was always, I was the chaplain's assistant. So I was always in the chapel. I was always around people until lock-in. So from when I got up in the morning from breakfast, I would go to program and I'd be a program all day. So I'm in program working in the chapel, first module, second module, third module, I'm down there at church or something. 
And then I'd lock in at night. So I was around people more than some people because there were some people who spent at least two of those three modules in because those were the counts. The first module is like 9 a.m. until 11 a.m. Then there's a count. Mm-hmm. And then there's 1 p.m. till 3.30 p.m. And then, it, then there's a count. And then there's uh, like 5 or 6 p.m. until 9 p.m. And then there's a count. So during those times when it was open, a lot of them I spent, I was on what they call an out count. So I stayed in the chapel because I was a worker. So I didn't have to be in my cell, you know, 15, 16 hours a day like some people did. But still, I still needed that isolation away from people because it was, it gained too much to me. And to this day, I hate crowds. Like, I don't like, I went to a concert a couple of years ago. I won tickets on WBLS up in New York okay. to go see the Stevie Wonder Songs in the Key of Life concert. Mm-hmm. And we get to the concert. Now, I've been to basketball games or something, but for some reason, this particular night, I'm walking into Madison Square Garden with all these people going to Stevie Wonder concert, and I just felt like I was going to scream. It was too many people. It was too loud. There was too many people around me, and I wanted to turn around and leave. And I had to fight the impulse to like need to get away from all these people because there was too many people close to me. I don't know these people. Why are you touching me? Why are you bumping me? And I have to realize that these are things. Now, this you're talking about at that point, 2017. So you're still talking about 19 years post-incarceration. Mm-hmm. Every now and again, it still comes back mm-hmm. because that trauma never leaves you. That trauma of being incarcerated and what that means and what they do to you and the conditioning that you have to go to in order to stay sane. You have to condition yourself to be able to lock in, to stay sane. You have to condition yourself to know that there's some level of abuse, either verbal or physical or something, coming from somewhere that you're going to have to fight off in order to stay sane, in order to stay safe, in order to stay whole. And and a lot of people don't realize the traumatic effect that has on you as a human being that you those triggers that you develop in there never leave you. And if they do leave you, it's only because you've gone to some level of therapy or or you've you've done something to recondition yourself to something else. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't. Right. A lot of people don't ever do that. And you know, and 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 there's a piece of that that you know that trigger is a survival trigger. Exactly. It's like that's the depthness that people don't really understand that this trigger that I'm engaged in is about the difference between where I was, my life, and death. Right. In many occasions. Right. Because you don't even realize one of the things that I realized very quickly in jail is whoever you associate with. Their life is linked inextricably to your life. Okay. So if everybody knows that my nickname in jail was Tank. Mm-hmm. So Tank and Ken, Kenny, or Tank and, let's say they called you Braswell. Mm-hmm. Braswell and Tank are good friends. If you got beef, I got beef. Mm-hmm. If I got beef, you got beef. And they may try to, so if I got beef, they may try to get you first so they don't have to worry about you when they get me. Right. So alliances become different. So now when I say somebody's my friend or I say somebody I love you, that's for real, for real, because I don't associate with everybody. And there's a lot of people who I keep at arm's distance because that feeling of my safety is tied to our relationship and I don't trust you with my safety. Bye, bye, bye. So in and and it's 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 one of the many things that one one of the many nuanced long term 
traumatic effects of prison that people don't realize. Mm -hmm. But when you look at this work um, around reentry, as I'm beginning to hear more and more of these stories, this work around reentry is really beginning to sound or it looks more like reintegration, right? It's really not about setting an environment so that one can reenter the way that they need to reenter. It's about reintegrating, which means that we need to make you fit in with everybody else. Mm -hmm. The problem with that for me often is that reentry work can't really work unless you are priming both sides, right? If you're not doing the work with the family mm -hmm. or with the children or with the community, and you're just doing it with the individual, right? Then it really doesn't work. For someone who's doing this reentry work now, like what are you seeing as the issues? And let's start with the issues first. I look at the reentry, I always use a landing strip analogy. Somebody coming in from prison is like a plane landing at an airport. So obviously the pilot is in charge of the plane to land the plane properly. The pilot has to know how to level the plane off and everything in order to land safely. But there's a bunch of other factors that have to go into that. The GPS has to be right. Because if the GPS isn't right, then the pilot doesn't know how close they are to the ground, how close they are to the tower and all of those things. You have an air traffic controller that once the airplane hits the runway, who's up there with lights directing them to make sure they're going the right direction. You have to have maintenance of the actual runway because a pothole in the runway could cause a crash and kill a whole bunch of people. Right. So there's a whole bunch of factors that go into landing a plane that goes beyond just the pilot being in control. <laughs> So when you're coming back from prison, a lot of people think it's, well, this person just has to control themselves. It has to be impulse control to not re-engage in criminogenic behavior. It's way more than that. The, 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 the airport has to know that the plane is coming in. The, the, there has to be some communication between the airport and the tower in order for them to know that the plane is landing, when they're landing, how they're landing, which one runway they're coming in, making sure there's no other planes taking off at the same time. There's a whole bunch of things that have to happen. You also got to know what the other planes are doing. Right. So it's the same thing with the family. So now you got a family who's been without the father. And maybe the father's not even coming home to the family. They're coming home to live with their mom or their sister, or they're going to a halfway house, but there's still a family there. There's all of these things that have to happen in order for, and, and a lot of times it's not a reintegration. It's an actual first time integration. Okay. Because the father has never really been integrated into the lives of the family. So he might've been ripping and running and doing his thing on the street and never really been an appropriate father to that child. Not for lack of love, not for lack of desire, but for lack of understanding what he needed to do or because they were so tied into the street life that I got to keep making this money. I ain't got time. I got to go here. I'm going to drop some money off and I got to go buy some pampers. I'll see you later. And so I didn't know what it meant to sit down and be, you know, be a father, talk to my kids, take them to school. I was out there ripping and running. So, so this, this new integration, this new life that we're trying to help people create involves a few things. One, you have to deal with the anger of absence. Mm -hmm. So there's a family that was left maybe hurt, maybe angry, maybe injured, maybe financially damaged, definitely emotionally damaged 
by the absence of the father, that person being taken out of the household or taken away from the family. There's a child who does not understand on some level why my father wasn't there and now my father's there. My personal experience was I was blessed in that my daughter's mother made sure that even though she was only three months old, that, that I was involved in some way in every step of her life. Mm-hmm. So I was daddy, I was dad. And the, the whole, her whole first nine years of life was the anticipation of me coming home. Mm. And but when I got home, <laughs> yeah, that's when the that's when the, the comedy ensued because it was like they had uh, my 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 wife at the time, my first wife, God rest her soul, lived on the fifth floor of the apartment building. Her parents lived on the second floor. So my daughter was back and forth between two apartments and she didn't have to clean up anything for herself. So she'd go down to grandmother's apartment, she'd throw toys all over the place. And she's like, okay, grandma, I'm leaving. I'm like, oh, wait, what you, you got to clean that up. Oh, no, no, I cleaned that up for her. No, she needs to clean up after herself. Clean your stuff up. You're mean. What do you mean I'm mean? You got to clean up after yourself. So now I'm the one who's coming in saying this child needs to be responsible, this child needs to be stuff. But they don't know me in that role. I was the fun guy right. that you saw for right. four or five hours at a time. I was the fun guy. When we had these the, the conjugal visits, we went and played outside of so we did, we played, we laughed. Now I'm here in a role and I'm saying I'm parent, I'm a disciplinarian. But no, in her mind, it's like, you're not what I've been waiting for all this time. You're mean. Why are you mean to me? You're making me do things that I don't have to do. And then the fight with her mother and her grandparents, because they were like, well, we don't make her clean up. Well, you should make her clean up right. or going to bed. Uh, it's 10 o'clock. Uh, why is she still up? Oh, she usually stays up till 11. Oh, no, she's not. Right. She's nine years old. She needs to be in bed by 8, 30, 9 o'clock. You're me. So all of those things, because I have one idea of fatherhood. And I went through the same fatherhood class that you spoke, and I went through the same fatherhood class with the Osborne Association. So I had some ideas and I had things. And of course, I had a picture in my mind of what fatherhood looked like when I got out, what I'm going to do, what kind of father I'm going to be. You know, and they had an idea of who this person was going to be coming home. So my daughter had an idea, we're going to play all the time because that's what me and dad do. Mm-hmm. My wife had this idea. He's going to help me pay bills because I've been by myself all this time. Mm-hmm. And that's not the reality when you first get home. It took me a couple of months to find a job. Mm-hmm. You know, thank goodness I found a job within two months. So it wasn't that bad. The financial thing wasn't really an issue, but everything else was, mm-hmm. you know, different rhythm. Uh, babe, you ain't come home from work till nine o'clock. Where you was at? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you call me? Oh, now all of a sudden I got to check in with you. I didn't have to check into you. you. You was in the penitentiary. So all of these things, and this, this is my personal experience. Right, right, right. And I could only imagine, you know, it's strange. You, you got guys who've been in prison and they got a, a two-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old mm-hmm. that were in the womb when they went to jail, or they got a six-year-old and a seven-year-old by two different women, right? right? And so now there's that tension. <laughs> so you, there's, 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 there's thousands of variants that vary from person to person. And of course, every individual is different. They deal with different things. Families are different, but the issues are the same. Right. The issue of how do I fit in? The issue of how do I provide and What does it mean to be a provider? And what am I providing? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we think we, we got this thing, you know, the big argument I always it, it boggles my mind to see this thing on the internet. Well, a real man pays your rent. A real man pays, but but a real man uh, uh, has pays dividends that go far beyond money. Absolutely. 
and 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 should be thinking like that. And if you're looking as a man as an ATM, then all you want is an ATM and a male appendage. Mm. <laughs> you're not really looking for a man. Wow. You're looking for some of the 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 uh, 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 the the the, uh, compl- the complementary uh, uh, things that come along with manhood, right, right, right. including the male organ, mm. uh, the male pocket. And the male presence. Right. So protect me, provide for me, and have pleasure sex with me. me. Pleasure me. Right. Pleasure me, provide for me. Right. And <laughs> but protect, provide, and pleasure. But what about the? What about my needs? Right. What about the family's needs? Mm-hmm. And how do these things mesh together? Right. How do I become a spiritual part of my family? Mm-hmm. Right. And those things, money can only take you but so far. The rent's paid. We got cable, we all got cell phones, we all got decent clothes, everybody got new sneakers, but we're a mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> stuff is resonating with me because I'm not, you know, what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about folks that want to um, get into this work, uh, particularly as it relates to um, going inside, right, and doing something, prison ministries and all of those kinds of things that people want to do and they have a heart for, primarily because either, either they were incarcerated or someone that they loved was incarcerated or it's just in their heart to, um, to serve that area of ministry. Um, but I often wonder you know, with these programs, and I'm still exploring, I'm still trying to figure it out. We here in Atlanta, we've been doing some work, particularly with Fulton County and with Rockdale County. And the interesting thing um, about the work that we're doing is because we are working with somewhat short timers, meaning that they're at the end of their sentence. A lot of these guys that are in our classes are coming out and they're coming straight to us. Mm -hmm. Hey, Remember, I was in your class and blah, blah, blah. What can you do? I need your help. The cool thing is we've been able to scoop them up, right? Because that's what we told them on the inside. When right. they come out, we're going to be here. We're going to be here to help. We're going to help you in a soft landing. And the crazy thing is I've never seen any of that work or have I described any of that work as reentry work. No. To me, it was just father right. work. Human work. Right? Right. Whatever you need as a father, I'm going to try to provide. We can work out that background stuff. And so when you look at programs that are doing specific or specific um, reentry work, um, explain to one person who may not know what that is, what it looks like and what people are attempting to do. Uh, I'm on the national board for two other organizations. One is um, Healing Communities USA, and we specifically do training for churches and houses of worship to become stations of hope for formerly incarcerated people, including setting up prison ministries. And I just recently joined the board for a program called Crossroads Prison Ministry. And they specifically provide uh, Christian education for men in prison. the problem with reentry work, and even as being appointed as reentry coordinator for the city of Orange, the city council always, the question that they ask about my work is, how many jobs did he get people? <laughs> right. And it's way more than that. That is the, I mean, jobs are important, but actually there may be jobs, maybe fourth or fifth on the hierarchy of actual needs when somebody comes out. Mm-hmm. Housing, stability, uh, mental health treatment, you know, uh, uh, physical health treatment, 
a lot of those things come, you know, family reintegration, those things come first because if you have those things, then you can hold the job. But if you don't have any of those things, if your mental health is off, if your physical health is off, if your family is in a shambles and, and, and you ain't going to hold no job. So you want me to find them a job first day out of prison. That's not going to solve the issue because there's guys who have good jobs who go back to jail. Right. So, so we have to get most or, and most organizations know this, but unfortunately the sweet spot for funding is in (laughs) in in employment monetary piece sweet spot in so so when i was working for the osborne association one of the things that they did was they integrated the fatherhood program along with employability work so we had this thing called (laughs) this thing called 24 7 dads (laughs) curriculum that i did not i can say it now i could not stand that curriculum um and i used it up to make it what i thought it should be for the men that i was working with but but the good thing about it was they at least they had an understanding that in order to get dads employed we had to deal with dad at home at least as much as we dealt with dad at work. Absolutely. So, so uh, I think I think organizations are getting that now, um, but there's still a long way to go because, as they call them, Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch, your average person says, "Well, they get jobs. They would get jobs, and become productive members of society." What the, What does a productive member of society mean? There are a lot of people who work who are not productive members of society. <laughs> There's people who have got jobs who have never been incarcerated who are not productive members of society. They're not. Sure. They get drunk every night. They beat their wives or they beat their children or whatever else they do. And we have to start to understand that 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 the reentry issue is not just a criminal justice issue it's a human issue mm-hmm. there's families involved there's trauma involved there's hurt involved there's there's people who who need love and attention involved you have a lot of men coming out of jail attempting to be fathers who've never been fathered mm-hmm. so mentoring um there's so many pieces that are missing from the puzzle and they don't get it. And in New York state, at least when I got out and it's not a whole lot different now, they released you. What they did was they waited to you about a year before you got out of jail and they started taking your little money, whatever you made from your job. Mm-hmm. I, my job, I was at the top tier of working and I made $15 and 53 cent every two weeks. <laughs> and what they did was they took 20% of that every week until uh, it came up to $40. And then when I got released, they held that $40. They wouldn't let me spend it. It was like an escrow. Okay. Right. And then when I got released, they gave me that $40 plus whatever's, whatever's in my account and two tokens. Cause there were no Metro cars there. you mm-hmm. get two tokens and that's what go be great. <laughs> go, don't come back. <laughs> and and you, know, you come on $40, right. even yeah. in two, even in 1998, that wasn't no money in New York. At right. That, right. So, so we have to really start rethinking what I'm trying to, 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 to get the uh, state of New Jersey to understand is that reentry starts the day a person goes to jail. Okay. Right. The idea of reintegration on it starts the day the person goes to jail, mm-hmm. because then the focus becomes two things. One is making sure that they are, have um, behavioral and programming uh, uh, 
a stability that will allow them to serve their minimum sentence. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times you end up doing more time because you didn't program properly or you were a behavioral issue. So to deal with those things. And that's a two-edged sword because the behavioral issues are sometimes personality issues and not behavioral issues. Right. But that's a whole other story. That's mm -hmm. an inside the jail issue. Mm -hmm. But I think that organizations and people who are doing reentry work, we need to have, like you guys, the reason guys come to you when they come out of prison is because you're a trusted resource. I met you, y'all dared, y'all came and y'all met me behind the wall. So now that I'm out, I already know y'all got me because y'all had me in there. So I'm believing y'all gonna have me in the outside. Fine. Your, our organization, unlike many others, fulfills that promise. Most organizations don't. Right. If you don't, they ain't not coming back. Right. So they'll come to you when they come out. And but see, here's the other thing: a lot of organizations are funded for reentry, but they're not funded for the in-prison work. Got you. Okay. So there's yeah. a disconnect. So you have one organization, usually the state, doing the in-prison work, and you got another organization doing out-of-prison work. That doesn't make any sense. Mm. It really needs to be a cross-pollination of both. Mm. And I really think the reentry organizations should be working with any man or woman within two to three years of the end of their sentence should be dealing with some sort of reentry program that has a direct connection on the outside mm -hmm. for everything from training for uh, parenthood, family reintegration, uh, uh, job readiness, and attitudinal approach to work. <laughs> Absolutely. I do, a, I do a workshop with uh, men when I'm working with a call, uh, 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 you know, boss mentality. Okay. And the, the, what I do is I give them four descriptions of four different people. And I say, you're the hiring manager. You're hiring for a cleaning company. This is a person that has to clean from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. It's the midnight shift, but that's where the main work is done. All the garbage has to be empty. All the floors has to be done. All the windows have to be done. All the desks have to be cleaned off between 11 p.m. and 7 p.m. There's four people that you need to work, and you're only hiring one. And I give them four different scenarios. Different people. One's an old guy whose wife just died who says I'm depressed during it. Another one is a girl who has a degree from community college. Her family has money, um, but they, uh, but she just wants to have her independence from her family. Another one is a guy who's formerly incarcerated who says I get high on the weekends, but I'm just raising my kids. And another dude is a guy who says, man, listen, I just need a job so get my parole off. So who do you hire and why? And there's various reasons why you should or should not hire each of them, but Ultimately, what it does is get to get them think about why should somebody hire you? Right. Yeah. So now you're in a seat where you're the hiring manager. So now you say, oh, dad, I said that in that interview, I was wrong. So some so so giving people insight, foresight, uh, 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 that's a good theological word for worldview mm -hmm. that allows them to see that. Oh, wow. Maybe I need to think differently about what I say and don't say or what I share during uh, an interview. Right. And then the other one is, is talking about who gets the promotion and why. Mm. You know, you got four guys that mop the floors and one guy gets his work done every night. He does it within an hour or two hours. He can chill for the rest of the night, but he ends up helping everybody because everybody has to be finished before everybody can get off. Right. So he ends up helping other guys. And there's one guy that's lazy because he know the other guy coming to help him. <laughs> right? right? 
and the boss gives the guy who's lazy the supervisor's job. So the dude who does the hard work said, how you going? I am, man. I work harder than everybody else. I can't afford to lose you on the floor. You my best worker. He's smart. He got you to do his work. So he's supervisor material. Mm. And just Flip to get on. people to think Same like right. that Why? gives them a different attitudinal approach towards work. Why? So now when you go to work, you're not just going and saying, I got a job. I'm making this money every two weeks. Now you're looking at the nuances of work, mm-hmm. how I can, this is a good fit. This isn't a good fit. I should stay here. I shouldn't stay here. This is why this is happening. And I'm good with that. But, but, but when we start getting into uh, you know, again, making people have the mindset of a supervisor as opposed to just somebody that comes to work, giving somebody the mindset of saying, I want you to see the bigger picture beyond yourself, uh, even with the family. You know, and I know Fathers Incorporated does a lot. It's making men think about things from the perspective of the mother. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Right. And when you do that, a lot of there's a whole lot of aha moments that go mm-hmm. on in there. Oh, oh, word. I never thought about that. I never thought about that she's dealing with three kids and she got to get up in the morning. She got to get all of them dressed and she got three girls. So she got to do all of their hair. And I can't help with that. I can't do nothing but a comb back and a, <laughs> a, a rubber band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then I wonder why she mad with me after the kids get on the school bus. Mm-hmm. Well, she mad with you because she got all them kids ready for school and you couldn't help her. Right. You standing there. Watching. And you standing there looking like watching. you ain't pour a cornflake. You ain't grab a bottle of milk. Watch you ain't did nothing. Watch you, right, you sitting there watching Good Morning America saying, I ain't got to get out of here until 7.30. But her work started at 5.30. Right. So when you get people to start sitting in the shoes of the other people that they have to deal with, then you create an atmosphere of empathy, of understanding that, that will help people navigate. Fine. Because a lot of, that's, that's the biggest issue, I think. People coming out of prison don't know how to navigate. Mm. Because they've navigated with blunt instrument, with blunt force. Fine. Right? Fine. You do what I do. You do what I say do. You give me your money, I'm going to shoot you. Fine. Right? You buy these drugs or you give me the money from selling these drugs. Or we, you know, mm. that is blunt instruments, blunt force trauma. Fine. But when you start to people understand that, that you deal with life with a scalpel and not a ball-peeing hammer, it gives them a different understanding of how to navigate. Yeah, there's a, a technique that's called uh, it's called uh, command language, mm. um, and typically they talk about that when they talk about the differences between the way that African Americans raise their children and the way that white people raise their children. Um, white people raise their children in negotiable language, right? Uh, reasoning language, right. right? So even if Johnny flips out in the pathmark aisle in the middle of the floor and acts a complete fool, their approach to it is to reason right. with the individual, right. which then teaches the, chi- the, teaches the child how to negotiate and reason situations. But for African-Americans, we are such a command-driven right. parenting style. Sit down, shut up, right. don't talk. Go over here, right. close the right. door. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the classic <laughs> innocent market, don't touch nothing. <laughs> but we don't, because of it, we don't train them with the skill of negotiating mm. and, and, and making logic out of conversation, even if they're wrong, and being able to do that with a parent who's going to allow them to be able to step out of bounds in order to get them back into bounds, but understand where their voices are. You know, it's crazy because when I think about that, I think about, you know, my children and think about um, the children that I was more command driven 
as opposed to the ones I was more negotiating driven. And I can hear like the differences in the way that they communicate back and forth with me mm -hmm. because they got this skill of being able to say, uh, um, you know, KJ is a big one. I don't really, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Okay. What well, don't you agree with it? And then you get to the point as a parent where you allow them to say, like, okay, I hear you. And that, that's a great point. But, but, <laughs> right. adult, but at least they have a voice. Right. Because I was raised, you didn't have a voice. Right. What? Right. You eat everything on your plate. What? You don't want that? You won't eat? Right. Right. Now, having said that, as we close, having said that, and I keep saying this from folks, that for our parents, and particularly for our grandparents, that command way of speaking to your children had a lot to do with survival. Absolutely. That the world that you're getting ready to engage will not have toleration for your negotiation That's skills. It. That's going to get you killed. Right. There was no negotiating with Mr. Charlie. Right. None. You, so, so we raise the children to say that, that when you got a command, it's almost like the military, right? right? You get a command, you follow the command because it could cost you your life if you don't follow the command. Right. You can't question the command. Right. And, and, and our parents knew that, that if there would be certain situations we'd be in in life that if we got to do, and we're still doing it right. in, in, in talking about how to negotiate with police right. in, the, in the police stop, right? right. Because now we, we have this dichotomy. We have children who've been taught to reason and to and to ex explain and to ask questions and to say that I don't think that that's the right thing to do. Uh, you might not want to do that if you got the whoop whoop behind you. <laughs> you know, you might you, bro, just I, you don't need to negotiate in that situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's uh, it's amazing to 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 see the difference, and you know, and to still see people saying, "Yeah, well, I got beat and I turned out all right." Well, did you? Right. Uh, What's your oh, definition of all right? right. Yeah, that's questionable. <laughs> you, you're surviving, but you're not thriving, dude. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so um, as we close, if you could do this for me, because I know that um, in your transition that you thought oftentimes, not only in your transition, but as you continue to do this work and you see these guys come before you, I'm sure it recalls you and you say to yourself, man, that thing I just said to them, I wish someone would have said to me yeah. when I was coming about. What's that sage advice? What's that advice for that father who's coming out of incarceration? He's coming back into the space. He's maybe coming into the fatherhood space and getting some skills. But what is it that they should know in order to keep them moving forward as opposed to falling back into old ways and not getting what they set out to get? Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, nobody's perfect. Um, and, and, and don't expect yourself to be perfect, but expect yourself to be perfectly you. Be authentically you. And to be honest about what being you is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then in that honesty, right, um, that love will ultimately win. Um, I'm a firm believer that love actually covers a multitude of sins. I actually believe that love does bring us through dark times. I do believe in the concept of actually loving the actual hell out of people. Mm. Um, and that um, my advice would be to them is to, is to find 
every resource that you can, every mentoring moment that you can enter into, every moment where you could sit under somebody who has the same uh, experiences that 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 are uh, that that will help you, or people who have uh, similar situations that can help you. Don't shy away from help. Don't shy away from those. OGs or the old heads or the old mothers or the old fathers who got some advice for you. Right. You know, listen to them. And and here's the other, uh, I always tell people, any place I go, I quote Jay-Z, it's not your net worth, it's your network. Mm. Create a network of people that you are safe with and safe around in some way. There may be somebody that you're safe with professionally. There's somebody that you're safe with emotionally, somewhere you're safe with psychologically and lean into those people in those moments that you need to. And, 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 and knowing and having love for those people and knowing that they love you, that reciprocal love will eventually bring you to where you need to be. Wow. Bishop Darren Ferguson, ladies and gentlemen, um, I don't know if I had if I had an applause meter, I would join <laughs> join and give you some applause. Um, but thank you so much um, for your pearls and wisdom. I knew that you would do exactly what I wanted you to do, and just kind of drops the nuggets for people to hear. Um, there's a whole nother conversation I wanted to have with you, so I'm gonna have to bring you back on the Zoom style. I probably <laughs> no, actually, well, we'll see about that. Um, but there's this conversation that I want to have with you that really begins to tease away this whole notion of how we integrate this responsible fatherhood and work into faith-based institutions, yeah. particularly into our churches and what that work should look like. Um, but until then, um, thank you so much uh, for joining I Am Dad podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell, CEO of Fathers Incorporated. Check us out every Sunday, same time, same place. 8 a.m. Eastern on all of your podcast platforms. We all over the place now. Uh, make sure if you lose us in those spaces, just go to IamDadPodcast.com. Sign up for our, our listserv so that you get a notice whenever we drop a new show, which is every Sunday. Um, we are booked right now literally into the next year, uh, which I'm really, really excited about. And every conversation that I hear just keeps getting better and better and better. So until sex, uh, until next Sunday, um, God bless you all. Take care. See you next week. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child... I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. period.